I haven't much time left. When I was a student, giving presentations to my class made me so nervous I'd forget and leave my meal unfinished. When you're excited, you can't operate fully. In my case, I'm reduced to 20%, and it's happening now. Are you excited? Or afraid? It's like when I gave the presentation. How about you? Did you feel the same way when you were dying? I did. But I didn't dare let you know. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Colro Lane. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 67 and we're back to Cole's selection, so what will we be discussing today? Today we are going to be discussing my favorite film from 2010, which is Uncle Boon Me Who Can Recall His Past Lives. Directed by Apichapong Verosetakul, starring Thanapat Saisemar, Jinjira Pongpas, and Nathakarn Afiawong. Notably, it's the first Thai film to win the Palm d'Or at Cannes, and I was saying it's my favorite of 2010. That is some stiff competition, at least on my list. I don't know about you, because we're talking about White Material, Winter's Bone, Mother, The Strange Case of Angelica, Meek's Cutoff, Certified Copy, some heavy hitters in international art film. The film itself is about a man suffering from acute kidney failure who has chosen to spend his final days surrounded by his loved ones in the northeastern Thailand countryside. I'm really excited to talk about this one because it is so incredibly different from what we've done before. Would you characterize it as the most avant-garde of our choices? So far, I think so. Aside from maybe a couple of the shorts that I have championed on our Ants in Your Pants episodes, as far as full-length features, it is definitely the most experimental so far. And I know that Weracetakul has specifically talked about being very much influenced by Maya Darren, who I am not familiar with, but I know that you are and are a big fan as well. I love Maya Darren, and I also feel a lot of Tarkovsky influence in this. I don't know if you pick up on that or not, now that you have seen several of them recently, especially since they are so fresh in your memory. The long, lingering takes, the languid pace... There's an intelligence and a playfulness at work simultaneously. It makes me think about the use of memory and also those cultural institutions, histories, and beliefs. You said it better than I could. I think that nails it exactly, especially when I'm thinking of the Tarkovsky comparison. But I do want to be careful of two things right there. One, I don't want the use of the label experimental to dissuade people from seeking this out. I know sometimes that puts up a barrier for some people, but this feels like an extremely accessible film to me. I completely agree, and I saw it totally blind when you presented it at one of our movie nights. And two, I want to avoid coming across as if we are saying he is somewhat of a Tarkovsky clone because he is a very distinct voice in world cinema. There is nothing like We're a Set of Cool on the cinematic landscape right now. In fact, I am going to say that he is my favorite filmmaker of the 2000s. Wow, that's pretty amazing. I want to go back to the accessibility for just a second. And speaking of the movie night that I mentioned, one of our friends who came... I would say 
not to disparage him, has pretty mainstream tastes, this ended up being the favorite thing that he saw of everything that we showed to him. I think that's a testament to how tender and inclusive and thoughtful where Aesthetical is. It's easy to think of experimental film as synonymous with confrontation, but that is not his way. And as far as the Maya Darren thing goes, yes, you are right. I do love Maya Darren. I don't know that I see as many echoes of her work in his. I do think, though, that any filmmaker who has an avant-garde sensibility or is more experimental in their methods, for them, for all of them, Maya Darren is ground zero. He also mentioned that he doesn't have any problem with the idea that not all films are for all people, and that's okay. But I really do hope that people seek this out. Well, this feature film itself was born of the Primitive Project, which was a multi-platform art project, which otherwise consists of a seven-part video installation and two other short films. It deals a lot with his home region in northeastern Thailand and how that area intersects with all of his personal preoccupations with memory, duality, transformation, politics. This is also a bit of a love letter to the Thai culture and the pop art that he grew up with. It's six reels, and each reel is referential to a different style of filmmaking. Now, the concept of the six reels, I didn't know about going in. And even after I learned about it, having watched it the second time, it didn't feel as though it was six different films, if that makes sense. It seems like an interesting thing to look at now and another layer of viewing, but it feels quite seamless to me just as a random viewer. Do you think it would have changed how you felt about it if you had been well aware of it going in? I think it might have, and I think I might have been looking for those differences, but I'm really glad that the first time I watched it, I just watched it as a viewer, just taking it all in. Well, I thought we could give a brief rundown of how the sections work and then just sort of go through what we thought was notable about each one. The two reels that bookend the film, the first and the last, I feel like are very specific examples of Weirsetikul's style, dealing with the things that he is preoccupied with, the first one specifically with the rural environment and with nature, and the last one ending up in the urban environment. And in each of these two sections, you see him dealing with themes that he frequently deals with, issues of family, shot in long takes, minimal dialogue, multiple points of departure, let's say, reincarnation, illness and mortality. If you get to know his catalog, you will not be a stranger to these ideas by the time you're done. In between that, the second reel, we have a much more classical and somewhat stiff presentation, more of a theatrical presentation, that is a bit of a nod to the film and television that he grew up watching, and the inclusion of some of these more supernatural characters, even to comic books he read as a kid. Following that, you have a nice, almost documentary feel for the next section, with some especially French touches to it. The next piece would be a costume period piece, almost a bit of a fairy tale. And then the fifth section, the penultimate section, more of a jungle exploration story. So, starting with this first reel, when we see them traveling to the countryside, what were your initial impressions on that first viewing as they are wordlessly riding in the car, or even before that, as we're observing the water buffalo that gets spooked and breaks his tether? The film opens with sound first, and that immediately puts me directly in the place. It's the cicadas and the jungle noises. 
And I will say, with the introduction of the water buffalo, this made Uncle Boon Me, Gibson, our dog's <laughs> third favorite film. I have never seen him react to a movie like this. He was still looking for that water buffalo days afterwards. He literally, and he's never done this before, went right up to the television so he could be nose to nose. And as soon as the water buffalo wandered away, he went around the back of the television to see if he could find him. So what I'm saying is Gibson gives this one five popcorn bags out of five. He does. I do as well. And I love to see that red eye creature. It's so startling. And yet at the same time, I feel that it immerses me in the film. Then when we moved to the scene with members of our family that we're about to meet, I was so struck by watching Aunt Jen open the window for the car. I imagine her wanting to smell the difference in the air and feel the wind in her face. And I think you first made the comment that this feels very much like your own family. These are people that you want to spend time with. And I completely understand what you're saying, even to the extent that comments that Jen makes throughout the film, though more towards the beginning section, the casually racist comments about Laotians and about immigrants, and yet she's still quite lovable at the same time, uh, that's family. I will say that Boonmi dispels those right away. He is the anchor for me here. He is the source of this radiating thoughtfulness and gentleness that pervades the movie. He is coming to terms with his own mortality. In fact, I think he already has for the most part. And this peace and acceptance that you just feel flowing from him immediately puts me at ease and keeps me there no matter what happens throughout the film. I think Jen is the sort of person that I can very much relate to in my family whom once they get to know someone, whatever this group is, they then realize, oh, they're a person just like me. Boon Me, on the other hand, is the person who seeks other people out. He wants these other experiences. That's what makes life enjoyable, livable for him. There isn't much that happens that's dramatic or of note in the first reel, I feel like. It feels more like it's setting the table. It's setting up house. It's introducing us to these characters and the setting that we will be immersed in for the next two hours. And the one little detail that I really liked is that he gives everyone their individual moment. For the great majority of the film here on, it's two shots or wide shots of large groups of people. But in the car ride to the countryside, every single shot of the people riding in the car, it's their own self-contained space. That moment you mentioned with Jen in particular opening the window, which I love that detail. I'm glad you pointed it out. Each one of them on this ride gets a special little moment like that, and they're very small, they're very subtle, but it just seems a very considerate, we're a set of cool thing to do before everything gets going to give each character their individual space and a moment to reflect before the story begins. And when I watched Jen do this and what that actress is conveying, I thought that she was coming home, which is not the case. Well, yes and no, we discover as the story unfolds. It could eventually become her home, as she is asked to take over the farm. But yes, you're right. In this instance, I think she's on her way to take part more as an overseer or someone who is facilitating the daily business that Boon Me can't tend to anymore, as his health is declining. I think it's yet another aspect of duality in this character. She is 
very much living in the city and complaining about it, but it's the world that she knows, though she obviously feels something very deep inside her when she's coming to the countryside. And she has to go through this process to embrace that part of her, and yet is still very much a city person. So we go through this opening reel and it gives us a good sense, at least a beginning sense of who these people are, what is important to them. And we see them setting up in preparation, we discover, for Boon Mi's final days. You see the younger men in the family, one nephew and one actually a hired hand, laying out clothes, medical supplies, getting the sick room ready. And the other detail I think that I like the most is we get a sense of a true sibling feeling between Boon Mi and Jen. She is his sister-in-law. She is the younger sister of his now deceased wife. But there's a nice little bit of sibling teasing that goes on between Boon Mi and Jen early on that makes you feel very much like they are family. The significant developments to me begin with what I think is the second reel, which starts in earnest with an outdoor dinner that first evening. It's presented very much in a classical style, shooting almost like the deck where they are having dinner is a proscenium. And it's this segment that where Setakul wanted the more classical, stiff, mannered delivery that I think works extremely well when he is juxtaposing it with the supernatural elements that begin to arrive here. One thing I wanted to touch upon here to see what you thought about this. There's the concept of using non-professional actors, and though a number of his principal actors here are in his other films, some have been in nothing else, it never feels to me, even though it is what I now understand to be a more stilted, traditional, mannered style, it doesn't feel as though they're amateurs. It somehow, to me, comes off feeling even more natural. Well, you know, knowing what I like, I'm a huge fan of non-professionals in these sorts of settings. In any setting, they're probably responsible for some of my favorite cinematic art ever. And now that I think about it, I probably even prefer professionals who are adopting a sense of the non-professional. When I think of someone like Cassavetes, you have Jenna Rollins, you have Peter Falk, but what you ultimately end up with is very much an amateur non-professional feel, I think. Not that I mean to disparage their talent, I mean that very much as a compliment, but I think it works extremely well here, and I think that the next reel, the one that we have immediately following this where they move to that documentary style that I was mentioning. When they're exploring his land. And you see the difference in what they're able to express when you see the very naturalistic style versus this mannered style that they're using here. You see how multifaceted and talented they are as performers. It's not an accident that it comes across so well in either setting. When you watch it, you'll see what I mean. But in this case, I do like having that background. Going in blind, like you mentioned, it has a very specific feeling to it, but now knowing that he is specifically referencing older Thai films and television in which the performances were less than professional level, let's say, to be diplomatic, in which you could actually sometimes even hear the actors being fed their lines as the cameras are rolling. Let me describe a little bit about what happens in the scene, and so maybe we'll integrate that discussion into this one and we'll put it together in a way that makes sense here. It begins with a family dinner in the evening outside with this beautiful serene setting that you mentioned with the cicadas, and it's a pretty banal conversation. It's just fun reminiscence about youth and beauty. And in the middle of this, unexpectedly, Boon Mi's dead wife, Hui, 
begins to slowly fade in and materialize at the dinner table. I like that this is not a CGI effect. Again, in keeping with that tradition of using an older style, so that I feel that I'm watching something naturally unfold before my eyes. I think I like most their response to it. It seemed very appropriate. It's not hysterical. It's not fear. And this is where that mannered style comes in. It feels controlled, but not overly so. It feels the way I would like to be received if I ever come back and sit in on family dinner when I am a ghost. I just took it to be that it was part of a cultural idea that ghosts are always with us. And so it's not a shocking surprise. There's no terror involved. And Boon Me asks, which I think is quite natural, are you here to take me away? He says a couple of things. And I think the one that I appreciate the most is that even 19 years dead, he is more concerned for her than himself. But I think you're right. There's a lot to be said for Eastern-Western differences in terms of how audiences approach this film. It might seem a little too odd initially or unrealistic, their reaction to this, because of what we're used to and how this theme would be treated in an American film, for instance. And it doesn't end here. The family reunion rolls on as another, even more odd manifestation happens when Boon-Mi and Hui's long-lost son, Boon-Song, returns to the family table as a monkey ghost. I think Jen was a bit more distressed by his appearance first, and then that goes away very quickly. And he begins to tell his story of what happened, the choice that he made to go out into the mountains. And he decided to mate with another monkey ghost, which is how he came to be where he is. I think I was still really interested the most in Jen throughout this. Because, again, as this family dinner continues, they are looking at pictures of Hui's funeral. And I think Jen is the person who is most distressed by change, yet feels that she's probably the most adaptable person. It says something about the spirit of peace and graciousness and acceptance that the person who is most distressed by these developments... Her reaction is only as drastic as moving away to sit a few feet further out and then eventually coming back. Again, no hysteria, nothing overly emotional because it is family. And so it would be easy to register at either extreme, probably. But that undercurrent of generosity of spirit envelops everything so much so that the person who is having the most virulent reaction is only, I need a minute away to take this in and then return to the fold. The other relationship and how that plays out that I was most transfixed by, and that's what inspired my recommendation when we get to it, is Huey and Boonmi. Watching how she relates to him as a person who is very much not in this world, but here for a specific reason, has accepted exactly what she is. And then Boonmi, who is reacting to her, it feels as though... She's almost that life preserver that he wants to hang on to, but he's not trying to cling to life. I love watching them react to each other and that interplay. It causes a lot of emotions in me, and so I keep coming back to it. Specifically because you find yourself imagining what you would be feeling in that situation? Yes, definitely, in all its different aspects for both characters. Well, there are a couple of things about Hui's appearance and their interaction 
that I want to ask you about. And I have one thing in particular that really appeals to me about it. And you alluded to it a little bit. He's not clinging to life. I love that there is not a pervasive fear of the unknown, even though this is a very Buddhist centric film. I feel like we're aesthetical balances that so well with worldly pragmatism that it appeals to me in my very secular attitude. This idea that the veil between this world and another is so very thin and not very much changes, I really find that appealing. I don't need a larger, more grand idea. I don't even need that idea, for example. I don't need there to be any other idea. I don't need there to be anything on the other side. But I love the very matter-of-fact way that this is presented and everyone's reaction to it as this is very normal. There is nothing to fear here. How did that strike you, that approach to what lies beyond the life that we know here? I really respond to the idea that you don't need the concept of our worlds are constantly being intermingled and our loved ones are with us as a comfort. And yet it's quite comforting at the same time. And I think Boon Me finds it to be comforting that comfort he finds, though, is very specifically rooted in the fact that he loves her so, not because he's afraid of anything else. Absolutely. That's probably why I find it to be so interesting, because it is your most loved one. But he is at no point terrified by the journey that is in front of him. And yet it's lovely to have the person that you loved most in the world by your side as you do it. I think tellingly, it's Jen who talks the most about karma while potentially boon me is the person who might be most affected by it he talks about his past specifically about killing so many communists that leads me to a question that i wanted to ask you about boon song he arrives as this unrecognizable spirit of the forest and he warns them of the spirits in the jungle talking about how they were perceiving his sickness and things might not have gone as well if not for boon song interceding on the family's behalf Thinking about the political and especially the combat-oriented slideshow that we have much later in the film, is Boonsong a little bit on the nose as a political metaphor? Because there probably isn't a much more symbolic representation of guerrilla insurgency than a monkey ghost. Someone literally leaving the world they know to live in the jungle as one of these spirits. And the reason I ask is because I know it's an oppressive regime that where Aesthetical has to deal with. Censorship abounds, and he has to find these very clever ways to get these ideas across. I'd like to talk a little bit more about that slideshow when we come to it. But in the meantime, what first occurred to me here is that, right or wrong, I thought that Boonsong was really standing in for Where Aesthetical, because it's his art that leads him away from his family. It's a direct choice that he makes. And also, maybe a little bit on the nose, he decides to mate with someone who would not necessarily be his family's first choice for him. And he makes that kind of irrevocable decision to go off and be this other thing. And yet he does come back for the comfort and sake of his own family and is welcomed back. I'm glad that you bring up how you feel like that is a surrogate for Weirasetical, because there is so much that's personal in this. In amongst all of this magical realism, there is a lot of true life. Where Sedekul's father died of acute kidney failure. The political clashes that spawned violence in northern Thailand left marks that are still being felt in all sorts of ways. 
And in a way, where Sedekul says, Boonmi is also him, specifically his memory of how he grew up within this landscape. And to your point, I mean artistic landscape as well as geographical. It's intensely personal. Even though it's purportedly based on other writings, it evolved, much like his films often do, into something intensely personal, which I find extremely appealing, at least with him. With his stuff, I often am very much reminded of how much I would rather have this instead of something that just anyone can make. No one else could have put these combinations of ideas and images together, and that, to me, is what is most valuable about his filmography. And just to put a button on this section about this second reel, there is a moment that I really love that I think indicates that playfulness that I was talking about. Where Aesthetical has a very sly sense of humor. This is a very intelligent filmmaker. Even down to the fact that the title, Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, we don't spend any time with Boon Me recalling much about his past lives. But the thing in this scene that I love the most that illustrates that is Hui gently responding to her monkey ghost son and saying, Son, earthly matters never cease to surprise. So we begin a transition into the third reel here, and Hui keeps vigil, sort of watching over Jen as she sleeps that evening. And Jen and Boon Me take a walk in this documentary section with this French feeling that I was mentioning, where they are surveying the tamarind harvest. And they are talking about when Jen could potentially take over the family business here. Which she is very reluctant to do. I don't get a sense that it's a done deal that she's going to. I get a sense that it's a done deal, but not because of what she's saying here, but because of what I know of them. She is not suited to it, like you said. She is a city person. But there is an immense sense of duty and responsibility within her that I think she would not be able to ignore. Where Aesthetical himself is the person who planted this seed in my brain about the Frenchness of this section. It's a feeling that he very intentionally, specifically set out to evoke, down to even including a little bit of banter in French to put you in that mindset between Boonmi's workers and Boonmi himself. Again, a very playful and fun scene that gives you a notion of the kind of employer Boonmi is. Generous with everyone. Knows everyone. Wants to know everyone. It puts me in the mind, in fact, of a film like Cousin Jules. Tell me about my pronunciation there. That was beautiful. In which we see an elderly couple navigating their way through this period later in their life in the French countryside. Even when they are discussing what are probably Boon Mi's most difficult memories in terms of dealing with his wartime recollections, there is such a tenderness. And Boon Mi and Jen, as they're having this meandering discussion throughout the afternoon, they go on this beautiful walk where we discover that Boon Mi, among other things, is a beekeeper and he has honeycomb. And I can't think of a more apt adage to apply than the more flies with honey in this case about the way Boon Mi conducts himself and his life. Is this your favorite reel? Boy, that is a good question. It is tough. I would say probably a close second to the second reel. I do love their interaction, and I really love the contrast in performance styles, like we were saying, the stilted style of the second reel versus this much more naturalistic, flowing, easy conversation. There is no acting here, it feels like. There's no artifice whatsoever. There's nothing between you and these people engaging in this conversation. And even though this is also not my number one favorite reel, 
It's the one where you could spend the most languorous time within. I still prefer the second reel for those things that I was mentioning, for how matter-of-factly they are dealing with these issues of this life and what might be beyond. But yes, this is a beautiful environment too. Is this your favorite reel or are we coming to that still? It's also my second favorite and we're still coming to my favorite. Okay. The thing that makes this such a close second though in terms of my favorite is something that you alluded to earlier about how much I feel for these characters and could easily spend time with them as family. It's this section that makes me feel what I can only classify as love for these characters, and I don't feel that about fictional characters very often. Are they easy for you to feel that as well? Very much so. I identify them with people that I know very closely. And I also want to say that you're not a person who necessarily talks about deep love of family very often, and so I was a a bit surprised that you felt this so strongly as well. Which is not to say that you despise your family or are estranged from them. It's just not a concept that I think of as preoccupying you. I talked about it a fair amount during our No Country for Old Men episode, I think. But I feel it very much in that Old West way in that it's out there, it's steadfast. I don't have to talk about it all the time because I can count on it. And I should say, I do not see myself reflected in this because I have mentioned on the show before... I don't necessarily feel like a peaceful person. I admire Boon Mi as a character a great deal, but I don't look at him and say, yes, I see myself in that. I don't know that I'm capable of it. But what I do see is that they are genuinely interested in one another's conversations. They ask questions that spur more questions. They listen. They care. They are innately curious people. That part of them I definitely relate to, and I think that's why I care for them so much, is that they clearly care for each other so much. I respond to it in what I think of as the absolute ideal and best part of family, is that you're there not from a sense of obligation, but truly from a sense of love. And I will say, you frequently chastise me because I will make reference to slow cinema and every time I pull out an example you always tell me it doesn't feel that way at all this goes by incredibly fast so I'm going to be the one to say it first although this is slow cinema I am on the record here as beating you to the punch and say it does not feel like that at all to me you took the words right out of my mouth I just feel it's important that as we go along here we periodically throw in that I really want to encourage people to fight through what might be possible initial frustrations with how bewildering this film can be at some points. Throw away your expectations that you have built in about traditional storytelling and just go along with this. Trust this filmmaker and this film. And speaking of sticking with it, even though it's bewildering and we're a set of cool sly sense of humor, we now arrive at the fourth reel Probably the most notorious for anyone who's heard anything about the film in advance, the princess and the catfish reel. And it's a bit of a costume drama, like I mentioned, a period piece, a twisted fairy tale of sorts. And it begins with a disfigured princess being carried through the forest. She's taken to the water's edge. Her reflection transforms. She begins to speak to someone, an amorous servant, as it turns out to be initially. The servant's advances are rebuffed, and he is dismissed, and then the seduction is taken up by a water spirit, as represented by this catfish. And I think where Sedekul is commenting on a couple of things here. One, the censorship thing I mentioned, and how he has to slip these sly things under the radar. 
there's a part of this, I think at least, that is no accident that this person is royalty. They're a figure of authority, and we find them to be vain or insecure enough to be easily seduced or straight up tricked by a mischievous spirit. But in keeping with his gentle side, his tender nature, there's also a commentary, I think, on how powerful the desire to be loved and admired can be. It's a universal idea, a very seductive idea, that no one is immune to, essentially. Okay, I didn't get any of that from that viewing. I thought, maybe incredibly naively, that I was watching someone who was unhappy with their appearance, and understandably so. In many cultures, they would be a person who wouldn't be thought of as beautiful, necessarily. And with that desire to be loved and desired, decides to have a go with an amorous catfish. <laughs> We're talking text, not subtext, basically, is what you're saying. And just because she gives of her jewelry as an offering, what the heck is the catfish going to do with it? Who cares? Everybody has a good time. I really think this is another one of those things that comes down to an Eastern versus Western reading. Reincarnation is not a theme that is prevalent in a lot of Western societies. And so there are elements of it that I am sure I am not picking up on everything. And I come from a culture, so I read it this way, that those sorts of spirits are trickster spirits, like the Kokopelli or something similar. But even in Japan, there are countless folk tales of those sorts of mischievous or downright malevolent spirits that are going to trick you out of all your worldly possessions, use you for exactly what they want, leave you devastated. I don't think it happens to that degree in this. I don't feel that level of maliciousness in this. I think especially as we end the reel while that lovemaking is still in progress, so we don't necessarily see a devastation that comes afterwards. I like to think of it as a memory that everyone will look back on and smile. Are we going to enshrine this moment in our upcoming Things That the Movies Taught Us About Sex episode? Is that where this one is going to belong? Maybe that'll be in the expansion part of the episode. This will be in your honorable mentions. I think it's important here to talk about the idea of escapism. I think that applies to this section in particular in the way I think of it applying to where Sedekul's filmography. His ambition to offer escapism, I believe it's there, but it is on a completely different level from how I usually think of that word. Usually I think of that term as a pejorative. This is not that. His ambition is to escape, yes, but to find a completely different reality, not just tamp down the one that we are currently dealing with. So maybe your reading of it is closer to the truth than mine, actually, now that I think about it. I don't have an answer, and I'm fine with either way. Which, going back to him and how he approaches this, I think is one of my favorite things about him, too. He would be fine with you going either way with that. He is not a didactic filmmaker that way. I know he believes in a very specific set of ideas, but I love when I read his interviews, how open to interpretation of his work he is. Countless times I have seen when an idea is presented to him, he says, sure, maybe, of course, why not? I think that idea was really interesting as well in terms of the use of reincarnation, because he talks about how he doesn't know that he necessarily believes it, but it's such an ingrained part of the culture, and it's fascinating to talk about and think about. And by that, I don't mean to suggest that he seems to be flippant or glib. I think it's just open-mindedness. Well, from there, we move to what I'm guessing has to be your favorite. And now that we arrive at the fifth reel, I'm maybe reconsidering my position a little bit because I'm thinking of the conversation that's in front of us. 
and there's a lot to chew on here. This fifth reel begins with essentially the scene that we did as our opening scene, where Hui and Boon Mi are discussing preparations for the end. He knows he's running out of time, and they have this conversation that we reenacted a small part of that is a transcendently beautiful moment. And where Sedekul's skepticism of religion comes in here that echoes a feeling I have, so I feel very comfortable with this notion, heaven is overrated. I think that's the part that I respond to the most in this conversation that they're having, talking about what to expect and how each one feels about this process. He's confessing his fears and anxieties to Hui. He's a little embarrassed of his own aging and deterioration. She offers nothing but the utmost comfort, though, I feel, even though she went through similar anxiety pangs when she was facing this. What is it that you respond to the most here? This is definitely my favorite section for several reasons. In this first part of this section, I'm really fascinated by, again, their interaction, watching him embrace her and watch her reaction to it, which is not quite as ardent as his, but I definitely respond to that idea of being able to touch your loved one again and how powerful that is. And when he talks about trying to determine where his spirit should go look for her spirit. I'm also really fascinated in general by transitions because I've been through a lot of them myself and maybe a bit like Jen, I go through them. I don't always embrace that idea and yet I do it over and over. Jen is an interesting force at play here because she is very resistant to this. Even though she knows it's an inevitability, at first she refers to both of them as mad. It seems very real that there's always going to be one person who's not ready, even though the others are. Well, they begin this trek into the forest. Monkey Ghost watching from the sidelines. Boonmi clearly struggling. He is definitely fading. And to be clear, that's physically struggling. Right, not literally fading before our very eyes, but his health is flagging very clearly. And they arrive at what I assume is your favorite location in the film, this beautiful cave. It is. If I could spend my days surrounded by honeycomb and then have my evenings in caves, that would be absolutely wonderful. And at first, I thought that Boonmi was alone, that he was going at this alone. Again, which I very much respond to, it calls to something deep inside me to watch someone make that final transition. But he is still with his family, and he talks about the idea of the cave as this womb and that he was born there. I like how this plays as a reference to Plato's allegory of the cave, being born in ignorance, experiencing knowledge, and then returning to this location for your end as a changed person. And the cave itself is a spectacular backdrop these luminous deposits in the cave walls that make it appear as if it's the night sky, these albino fish in these ancient pools finding life where you thought there could be no life. You have the image of being able to see the moon and thinking about in ancient times what that would inspire in you as a person or as a spirit. Unfortunately for him at this point, Boonmi is losing his sight, losing his ability to perceive this beauty. So we know we can't be very far from the end. What it made me think of most was the albino fish, that he is now becoming one of them. And in the same way that Boonsong had to change his vision when he transitioned to become the monkey spirit, that's what's happening to Boon Me. 
intercut here with all of this beauty, we have this jarring slideshow that makes reference to this military violence that we've been hearing about all this time, but in a much more contemporary sense. And this is what we alluded to earlier in the episode. It plays as if it's possibly Boon Mi's final dream. For me, though, it plays more as a shocking reminder in the middle of all this gentleness of the world's capacity for hostility, for cruelty, and especially how I associate that with modernity. Because the images we see seem to be of contemporary young men. It seems now, it seems current in place and time. It's not his reminiscence. It's what he would encounter if he went out into the world today. Because it's soldiers and what I think to be slaves, especially if they had taken the monkey spirits as slaves, I thought that it was Boonsong's experience. Or the potential for Boonsong's experience if we stayed on a specific path. Well, there always is that question when it comes to we're a set of cool, this notion of divergent paths, all of the infinite possibilities. But we come out of this reverie to discover... Boon Mi is now dead. He's lying half in shadow in the cave. Everyone else is now left to go on, which leads us into Reel 6. One last thing there before we move on. It's an incredibly moving experience to see his legs in the sun. As I would imagine, I would start to edge towards the light, feeling that warmth on me. And then, of course, having my life stopped and watching Jen edge her way physically over to him. She's got possibly hip dysplasia or something like that, that one leg is visibly much, much shorter than the other. So the mechanism of her scooting her body over one foot at a time to get to her loved one is very beautiful. So we return to what I think of as Weir Sedekul's signature style for this final reel when Jen returns to the city to conduct a memorial to get on with the affairs of putting all of this stuff in order. We learn that the nephew Tong has gone to the temple to begin to study as a monk. Again, something I don't think he's entirely suited to. Much like everyone in these films, they have these splits in their personalities. And while I'm tempted to say duality, which I think we've probably used as a term a couple of times now, it's more than that. It's more than just two. I don't want to portray it as... A dichotomy, because it is much more than two choices that we're Aesthetical is trying to make us aware of. But Aunt Jen is in the hotel room, sorting through offerings. He can't sleep. He comes over. And we see their spirits diverge. We see them become two sets of people here. One that stays in the hotel room watching television. One that goes out in the city for a meal. And I don't know why exactly it's the two of them leaving the other young woman that's with them behind, though I get it, but I don't have a specific clear answer that I can articulate. And I really enjoy watching Tong's reaction to it. He's very surprised and lingers for a moment while Jen is not. You mean in terms of actually being able to observe that there is a split? They see themselves still watching the program on TV as they are leaving. There is a lot about this idea that he is trying to put across that I really like. Before I forget to mention that there's also one of those just intuitive moments that I think really connects with me. Where Sedekul specifically refers to the song that he used for this final section. And it's a very weird Sedekul choice in that he chose it for no reason other than the feeling it gives him. It's not the lyrics, 
It's not that he has a particular connection to the artist. The sound, the combination of the way the music sounds and acts with the scene gave him a very particular feeling that is completely intuitive, and he went with that choice. Somehow, I feel that I totally get that because every time I listen to it come in and I watch Jen listen to it and think about, is she going to get up and sing it for karaoke as well? It seems to make perfect sense. It seems to reflect the beating of their hearts, the song in their bodies, a sense of modernity, but something else that is transcendent of culture. It seems totally apt somehow, and I don't know the lyrics, I don't know what's being sung, but somehow I feel it in my body as well. But to get back to that idea I like that this is indicating that I've talked about a little bit, not just duality, but more than that. Divergent timelines, these phantoms that we become with every choice that we make, having more than one identity in the same life even, all of those themes that he deals with all the time, the rural versus the urban, disenchantment. The end here, I think it's indicative of a much bigger idea. He's not just trying to tell us that there's a second option, but that there are infinite options, which I see as a very uplifting sentiment. I really love the note that this goes out on. To me, it doesn't feel melancholy at all. It feels very encouraging. I noticed in another interview that I was reading that he said religions are dangerous to humankind. Again, a sentiment that I heartily agree with. The way he thinks about it and the way I think about it dovetail really nicely with this final scene in that I believe in the adaptability of the human spirit, but in a way that is applied very concretely, not in a metaphysical sense exactly. More in the sense that people lack self-awareness and therefore never truly know what they are capable of, which is considerable. And the real world and all of its infinite possibilities is wondrous enough, and that's the feeling I'm left with when this fades to the credits. I think I feel slightly differently than you. I do feel more of a sense of melancholy. I think that's because we're left with Jen's face. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I don't have a problem with melancholy. I also think about those more concrete choices ahead for them. And they do seem a bit more prosaic than infinite. But that's my worldview. So I truly hope that there's a third and a fourth and a fifth version of Jen and Tong out in the world doing whatever. And that most of all, that our sort of forgotten young woman is not tethered in that room. Well, that brings us to the end. And I am left wondering if you think, now that you've seen it twice, if a second viewing is absolutely necessary for this. Because I was thinking about how there are some people that might call that a failing. Why make something that is so deliberately unyielding that you have to go back to further mine it to understand it at least once more? A, that will never be a failing ever for anything, any piece of art, music, visual, whatever it is. Don't you want to return to something to find something new or discover something new or understand something in a different way? Or look at a super cool cave again. So that second pass of Porky's 2 is an absolute necessity? <laughs> well, that I can't answer. But my part B to that question is my inevitable full disclosure. The first time I watched it, this was at our movie night. I fell asleep, which is not a comment on the film. You dirty dog. I do that often only because of... Again, prosaic reasons. I'm just tired. So I had to go back 
because I missed an important middle section, so it was wonderful to be able to experience it again. I will say, as I'd mentioned earlier, both times I went into it not knowing key details of the film or the filmmaker, so I still felt like I was experiencing it for the first time each time, and I was not trying to mine it for meaning. I was simply, as I do with most things, just letting myself go. So now back to you. Were you looking for a film featuring an amorous catfish and you decided, <laughs> let's do this one? Well, the reason I chose it for movie night is also the exact same reason I chose it for this show. I so terribly want everyone to see this film and to give it an opportunity to work on them at least twice. Mainly because I don't think you're ever going to see anything that is so tenderly and genuinely trying to show you something you otherwise wouldn't see. It is a little slow, yes, it moves at the speed of someone at the end, someone who is saying goodbye. But it's also trying to tell you in the exact same moment that boundaries don't exist the way that we think of them. Surrealism, magical realism, call it whatever you want to, the path that Wirasetical lays out for us here to get you there makes challenging ideas truly a pleasure. They still aren't necessarily any less puzzling, but you don't feel a sense of confrontation like I mentioned. And I think I've covered all of the other significant reasons for me that I find it so uplifting that even though it can be quite bewildering at times, it is so rewarding. It is so generous and where ascetical gives you room to interpret however you want. And I really do think that he is, if not the, at least one of the most interesting filmmakers working in the 21st century, especially when I think about what he has to go through in Thailand to make these things. He's spoken himself about how sometimes he doubts himself. He'll doubt the truth of what he is doing, which has to be difficult when art is your whole life. Because he is wondering if he is expressing himself completely or subconsciously self-censoring because he knows what he would face. Even with his high international profile, it would be easy for them to throw him in prison for being critical of religion, for being critical of the government, for things that we take for granted. So not only is he making art that I think is challenging and interesting and extremely valuable? He's doing it with higher stakes than we would. I just admire his method and his outlook a great deal, and I hope everyone digs further into his filmography. Which I think is a nice segue into my recommendation, actually. I am going to stick with a pitch upon where a set of cool, and I'm going to recommend that everyone goes to see Syndromes and a Century from 2006. In keeping with his experimental aesthetic, it's the same film twice, but not exactly. It's a film split into two halves, where the performers and action basically are the same in each half, but with different settings and resolutions, if resolution is even the right word for his filmography. It's inspired by his parents and their relationship and tells the story of a pair of doctors, each living through their version of this narrative. And it explores all of his signature themes, Memory, reincarnation, nonlinear storytelling, illness, transformation, and it imparts the same feelings I frequently get from his work. Joy, bewilderment, peace, wonder, playfulness. If you enjoy Uncle Boon Me, you will not be disappointed by syndromes in a century. And before I forget, I do want to mention that the great majority of his stuff can all be found via strand releasing. He hasn't turned up on the major boutique labels that we tend to buy or that are on people's radar the most, but I do want to put in a special plug for Strand releasing, because not only are they a significant art house presence, 
but you won't find a better label at curating LGBT related films, either the stories themselves, the themes contained within strand releasing is excellent at that stuff. And you'll see this stuff turn up in his work as well. So it's no accident that that's who is distributing his films. But yes, I want to definitely put in a plug for strand releasing. And what about you? As I mentioned a few times, I was really struck the most by the ideas of grieving the loss of loved ones and transitions. And that made me think of Blue, the first film in the Three Colors trilogy from 1993, written and directed by Krzysztof Kieslowski with Juliette Binoche. Blue was the first entry that goes along with France's national motto, Liberté, Égalité, and Fraternité. Blue is Liberté. The idea is about a woman, Juliette Binoche, struggling to find a way to live her life after the sudden death of her husband and her child. She starts out by seeking to be completely free of any commitments, going to some place where no one knows her, leaving the past completely behind in a number of different ways. And yet, she is continually drawn back into caring for other people, a sense of community, returning back to that old life as well. And it's also about finishing things, whether they are left to you to finish or not, as I think Jen faces, whether or not they were created by you. I haven't seen this film in many years, and I saw the trilogy in the order that it came out as well, and I would love to revisit it. I think it would be great for our show as well. It was the first film that I saw as an adult where Juliette Binoche's full range really spoke to me, which I know is kind of an odd thing to say because it's not as though she's some sort of a slouch in the acting department, but she really made an impact here on me, especially when I look at the choices that she makes in order to inflict pain on herself to feel something and how those feelings come out. So we've done it again. Two great recommendations, <laughs> Syndromes in a Century and Blue. And that brings us to the end of episode 67. Before anything else today, I would like to say a special thank you to Matt Gasteyer for becoming our newest Patreon supporter. If you would like to check out all the things we offer there, you can find that at patreon.com slash magiclantern. Other special thanks this time around go to Aaron West, who just had us on for an episode of his great show, Criterion Now. Thank you so much, Aaron. It was a great pleasure. It's always super fun to do that because we get to talk about so many things, which I know you love. Yeah, I get to cover about 200 different titles. Yes, if you enjoy the world of Criterion Collection in any way whatsoever, please go check out Aaron's show, Criterion Now. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. You can just look for our name in any of those venues. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to say a thank you to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. And there are quite a lot of them this time. We had such a great response from being on Aaron's show and from our show about the apartment. This is a really great community that we belong to. I just want to say before anything else, our podcast brethren, all of our other friends and listeners, it's really gotten the year off to a great start for us. So thank you very much. Tim Lego, the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, Keith Rich, John Laubinger at the excellent podcast Film Baby Film, Doug McCambridge at the equally excellent podcast Good Times Great Movies, Grindhouse Dave, Dave Hollingsworth, 
two days for the price of one. Brian Sauer, Becky Deanna, Jeff Duncanson, Jason Beamish, Mark Herney, Danzel Escobar, Adam and Allie at the really fun show, So That's How It Ends, Tim and Leon at Yaga Day, as always. Thank you all so much for your input and for spreading the word. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, pretty much any podcatcher you use, you can find us. I also want to say a special thanks this time around to Michael Hutchins, who left us a wonderful five-star review and said a lot of wonderful things about the show and a number of other places online. Thank you so much, Michael. We appreciate that. And also thanks to the anonymous person that left us another five-star rating. That's great. Anytime any of you would like to do that via any of those services, we will certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 